0: Hello and welcome to Black and Green Podcast, episode number nine. It is just now June 4th, 2018, and I am your host, Kevin Tucker. Uh, I got a little bit of house cleaning to start out the episode with here. This is the first episode that's getting loaded directly onto the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, uh, which I'm happy to be a part of. I loaded the last episode, number eight, which was a two-part episode on probably a week ago, um, but it's kind of back in the rotation a little bit. Uh, So this is going on there. I will be uploading past episodes, but I do have to resize them and stuff like that and things that take me longer than they probably should. Uh, But in the meantime, if you're catching up or if you're just hearing this for the first time, uh, you can get past episodes on black and org, And when you go on there, there's a tab for the podcast. And all past episodes are on that. That's all from Archive. And like I said, I'll eventually I'll get them all up on the Channel Zero network as well. But in the meantime, uh, that's where they're at. And I do encourage people to listen to the last episode uh, because it's something that I could go on about extensively, talking about uh, the death of an ayahuasca shaman, uh, the entire guru kind of ordeal that's going on in civilization right now, modernity, the. Uh, entire emphasis on uh shamanism as like kind of an escape and retreat or whatever whatever it is and also uh genocide of the Aceh. So it's an important episode to me uh and I would encourage you to listen to that other episode as well, but that one in particular. Um another matter here, uh Good Life Revival, Sam Sycamore's podcast. I'm going to be getting interviewed on that, I believe, this week. I'm not sure when he's going to run it, but he was talking about doing my new book, uh, Gather Remains, as his book club book for June or July. Um, If you haven't checked it out, you could probably check that out, and the episode should be airing, I'm I'm guessing, in the near future, but either way, if you're interested in getting in on the book club or whatever that is, uh, the following, I'm not sure where all that takes place. It might be an email list. Um, I did make a coupon code for the blackandgreenreview.org page. So if you order Gather Domains from now through, I think, July 1st uh, and enter the coupon code GOODLIFE, you get 15% off the book. So if you're interested, there's your chance to uh, save a little bit of money potentially and take part in that conversation if you would like to. Uh one other order here, so black and green review number six. The deadline is September first, but if you have something that you're interested in submitting, if you have something you're interested in talking about, uh discussing with the editors, we do have an extensive editorial process. So please get that to me or to us sooner than later. Uh you can write black and green review at gmail dot com uh and on blackandgreenreview.org there's a bit about our submission deadlines and things like that. Uh we don't just take things based off of how interesting your pitch sounds. So it's basically going to come down to the actual writing and there's a good bit of editing that goes into all of that. So the sooner you have your idea, the sooner you bounce it off me or anybody else from the uh, editorial collective, anything like that, the better, but we are getting people writing and uh, we are getting some, some, a good bit of submissions and a good, bit of interest. So uh, the sooner you get that to us, the better because uh, the closer it gets, the more involved we're going to be in specific pieces Uh, and it can slow down the response time sometimes too long to get it in the issue. On to the first segment of what is pissing me off this week. So Monsanto is currently in the process of merging with, uh, I believe it's bears, a major drug manufacturer. Uh, it kind of makes sense in all the fucked up ways that, uh, the major pharmaceutical company and a major, uh, a uh, shithead company like a global engineering company like uh, Monsanto. And, of course, uh, they make uh, Roundup and all the glyphosate products, um, pesticides, herbicides, all that, that they would tie together. But uh, it's just, you know, building up that giant evil corporation or just building up another one. But in looking through the articles on Monsanto and Bayer, I stumbled upon this Uh, supposedly social media, social network project that Monsanto is working on, despite the fact that they don't have their name on the page as far as I can see. Uh, But this is fucked up. This is a uh, project or an app. It's called Climate FieldView. And even worse, the URL for the webpage is actually climate.com. And you could be totally surprised to find out that climate.com does not talk about climate change Uh, even though it seems to be supposedly alluding to it in a very roundabout way, in a very obviously fucked up way. But the whole idea of what they're doing here is they're trying to sell uh, along the lines of a social media, social network thing is really just a completely integrated technological solution for the potential future of farming. So, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic because a lot of the farms and these major farms are in areas where, like out here, there's – not really cell service there's not really anything like that Uh, so obviously you'd have to buy a lot of infrastructure just to be able to integrate these devices but the idea is that the farmer could be sitting in a tractor with a smartphone, and it'd be a smart tractor and it can just go ahead and translate all this data and all this information but it's just another way that you can see how the acceptance of data and the acceptance of data mining really kind of comes in and goes and uh, in the Franklin Foer book, World Without Mind, which I've read from a bit before in earlier episodes uh, i it, it kind of presents this dismal picture about technology and the nature of technology and the nature of data uh and things that we should have been seeing with Facebook and with social media and social networks all along, but particularly as the Cambridge analytica information kind of pulls out and all the fallout that's come behind that um you know we're we're really seeing this thing where this extensive data mining. Uh, is all happening with the idea that you know the convenience factor of having a technology or having a a machine in your pocket that's going to determine everything about your life and going to blend us more and more towards like these predicted behaviors and predictive behaviors and make us better integrated to deal with machines on the level of having our behaviors be so predictable and acting so machine like is going to. Create this scenario where we're actually going to be thankful that this data is being collected. And for the most part, that does seem to be the case. I mean, most people seem to be kind of at first shocked and then very immediately complacent or totally fine with the idea that, like, uh, well, Facebook has all this information. There was this whole burge. it seemed, at first, when the Camera Analytica stuff came out, that people were going to be walking away from it. But then you know it seems to be accepted for the most part or it seems to be thought that you know all these new data guidelines and i'm sure everybody's getting the same emails from every company talking about changes in their privacy protocols and changes in the way that they're handling data and all this bullshit it's really just like hey we got caught but we're gonna keep doing this um but as franklin ford points out in that book and, and looking at amazon and jeff bezos is kind of the model for it you know the the number of Amazon's purchases that are made because of suggestions goes to show that this kind of predictive behavior uh is generally welcomed and it becomes so ingrained and so uh so much a part of our day-to-day lives at this point that we stop taking notice of it unless it's not there. Uh so it's it's well pretty insane situation and uh, I hope that people would look at it but at the same time it's like the the tendency is that there's this shock and all kind of moment and then people just walk back and say it's like oh it's a big deal and obviously it's a fucking big deal obviously that should matter and that should get people going but you get this thing like climate field view and it shows the the total extreme to which these kind of corporations are willing to try and take advantage of, of that kind of acceptance of an insane pathological level of technological intrusion and go full bore with it so reading a little bit from their webpage here climate field view does the listening so you can get the most out of every acre it's a fully technological solution here edge farm is different every field is unique use field view year-round to make data driven decisions to maximize your return on every acre we're your data partner to seamlessly collect, store, and visualize critical field data, monitor, and measure the impact of your agronomic decisions on crop performance, and manage your field variability by being customized fertility and seeding plans for your fields to optimize yields and maximize profit. So in in response to people being more interested on some degree, on some level, with, you know, where their food is coming from or knowing your farmer, or whatever kind of shit's going on there um, – they, they have actually, and, and they have used the terms farm to fork in their marketing, which is insane. They've just said that instead of having the farmer know anything about what's going on or being able to explain to consumers or priors or whatever, it's, I mean, this stuff goes into a global field stream, and you know there, there's very little of the farm to fork in any of this stuff. Uh, but they're just banking on the idea that, instead of having the farmer potentially become educated about what it is they're doing and what the consequences of it are, it's this over-reliance on technology and having the farmer be an extension of the machine as they have been for some time. Uh, By and large, most food is just monocrop, cash crop, CAFO shit food and stuff like that. And it's, it's not even food. I mean, most of what these people or these farmers are going to be growing corn and soy and wheat are either for flour or for animal feed. Um, So, you know, on every level variations of disconnect, but the entire point of this technology is to completely remove any aspect of decision-making or agency on behalf of farmers, even fucked up farmers who just want to sit in their tractor. And of course, you know, it's skipping on the idea that a lot of this is paying um, migrant labor, underpaying migrant labor to do any of the actual work. Um, But the idea is that, these tractors and these machines that they're going to create can constantly scan your fields and scan everything to see what the conditions are, what the the moisture levels are, what the pH levels are, uh, every bit of detail you could get from advanced scanning techniques, passing that back through this plan, which you would have going to your cell phone, which is a does have an annual fee, does have monthly fees, um, and of course, like I said, you the get everything integrated and wireless out in your fields, which for the most part aren't going to have any of that. Um, and then that information is automatically passed on. And they're trying to talk about all this shit about it being uh, every field is unique and all this stuff. It's like, well, the, the thing that's going to determine how much roundup is sprayed on every seed and what kind of GMO seeds are going to be used and what kind of field are ultimately just going to be made by algorithms. Um, so it's, it shouldn't have to be pointed out how insane this is. Uh, but obviously it is, and these are the kinds of things that you, you you know, you're not going to hear about, and they're being marketed specifically to farmers and you know, farmers in these these ranges. Anytime you're looking at this kind of thing, it's you know, it's not a family farm or something like that. It's a massive corporate endeavor. Um, and you know, just gonna have some some dickhead who calls himself a farmer is just some tech asshole but they're, they're buying into all this kind of tech startup stuff. And there, there's so much more to be said about all of that. Um, and i granted we will, but the whole idea of saying, it's like, well, what if we just took your farm and turned it into data? And this is of course, what has been the goal and interest of farmers all along. They want to be able to just turn this into full on economics rather than just, you know, the ins and outs of farming. Um, and so, you know, the the three core things that they want to present with this in this platform, which, of course, they say, uh, I just have to repeat this stuff. The Climate Corporation has built the climate field view platform to help farmers sustainably increase their productivity with digital tools. Because sustainability is obviously about your bottom line. That's what you're going to be making. So... Uh, the three three points here that they want to iterate to get people to buy onto this. Get your data in one place. Uncover valuable field insights. i am just read about this. Uncover valuable insights for the next season with tools that help, your anal- to help you analyze crop performance at the field level or by field zone. Use in-season imagery to identify issues early and take action to protect your yield. And then optimize your inputs. Which, you know, I hear they say... Seeding prescription tools, nitrogen management tools, and fertility scripting tools. Fertility scripting. Now, that is the kind of terminology you need to look out for because that is some sketchy shit. When you're dealing with GMOs, and the, I mean, I don't know what that means. Um, and, I mean, obviously, there's a number of different GMO crops out there and things like that, but would they be able to change genome sequencing on an individual level for these fields? You can see how from a... Capitalist farmers' perspective: How that kind of thing would be good, Um, which is one of the things that makes it scary. Because you know, as we've discussed on here, and as I'd hope people would have noticed, if you have money, you can pretty much do whatever the fuck you want, Uh, and that seems to be the general operating basis for nearly all of this. Um, So, the entire idea here is really just built around, you know let's just turn all this into data. We can turn all this into data and we can make it really neat for you. We can make it very easy for your bottom line, which is a big fucking deal. And the more you look into economics, the more you get involved with really trying to understand how the economy works, particularly how it's not going to work. Uh, You understand how much of capital, how much of, of equity and all that stuff is really just a mishmash of loans and startup capital. And of course, all these kinds of things are pushed by a ton of starter capital, and then they're really just feeding into this whole tech startup world, which is a whole fucking mess of shit. And the way people talk about it, you're just seeing this stuff come up in terms of um, trying to pitch to a farmer. So I mean, it's like a from a farmer's perspective, like this kind of language is meant for investors. So it's it's kind of confusing to think about who who this is for. And so they're talking about their nitrogen management tools. Nitrogen is complex and difficult to manage. Our nitrogen monitoring tool embraces the complexity of the nitrogen cycle through advanced computer modeling and simulation. It captures the many aspects of the nitrogen process, including volatilization, denitrification, leaching, and plant uptake. You know, this is really just meant to make you know you feel like you're making a smart decision without actually thinking about anything which is the entire purpose of the entire technology and again a fucking scary technology uh and going back to how they talk like tech startups and everything like that on their blog uh they're they're promoting from February 12th 2018 a hack attack global participation in our annual hackathon and mind you for a company that is dealing with genetic engineering to be using this kind of Silicon Valley startup language, uh, it's fucking freaky. Um, we're talking about Climate Corporation conducts a hackathon competition where teams from across the company come together to work in new ideas for complex, interesting projects and to address existing problems. So, you know, you can just imagine that Facebook, YouTube, Google kind of situation where it's like, you know, we've got this big open area. We've got standing desks. We've got all kinds of games for these fucking dweebs to play and shit like that. Things that are going to make it a real fun place to work because everything they're doing is solving some kind of problem. They're going to be out to hack it. They're finding some solution that's going to change the way that we deal with everything. Um, and They have a, uh, a team from this year's thing assembled in an experimental farm bot open source agricultural robot to aid in training weed detection and recognition modules under different controlled environmental conditions, including soil types, available nutrients, lighting, soil moisture. It's just, uh, fuck. I got to read a little more. The data collected from these controlled experiments could also help solve the inverse problem. Given an image, what were the conditions that contributed to the weed outbreak? Herbicide resistant weeds continue to be a challenge for farmers, causing tremendous impact to crop yield and quality. Note, no airplanes were harmed during the construction of this, butt. you fucking assholes. Ah, I hate these fucking people, but this is how the world works. This is how civilization works. It empowers fucking assholes to be able to do whatever the fuck they want, which is crazy, which is trying to say that they're, they're trying to be fun about airplanes and shit, whatever. We're, we're not harming anything. Meanwhile, they are trying to construct, and never forget this, they are trying to construct an algorithm which completely removes any human interaction in the training of weed detection and the response to weed detection. So there's nothing about this. And all the kind of shit you'll see and all the kind of bullshit you'll see about farming and pesticides and safety warnings and things like that, that they are going to be in control, that there's a certain level, a safe level or something like that. Fuck, a machine's not going to know that. Machine's not going to give a shit. There's, there's no, it's, it's a fucking machine. It's an algorithm. There is no any kind of oversight with these systems. And the idea here is to create a system with no oversight that does not need oversight so it can automatically respond to things that totally normally happen, which is something that we're seeing, which is something that they're not discussing, but it's the subtext of this kind of conversation, which is the increasing toxicity of cash crops due to climate change. Uh, And this is something that I I think we'll be seeing much more of. It's something I mentioned, I think, in the uh, introduction for the last last episode issue. I'm sorry, issue of Black and Green Review. Uh, And I think even in number four, it's been going on a while. But corn, soy, wheat have been changing the thresholds of uh, toxins within the plants in response to rising temperatures, which is a huge fucking deal and something that's going to need to be addressed or understood to understand how the civilization is going to collapse here and what it means to live in a finite world. Um, but this isn't the solution. And this is most definitely not uh, any kind of response to or acknowledgement of climate in any climate change and climate instability in any realistic way. It's just another way of saying, as civilization has always said, we're going to find a technological solution and we're going to create a machine that's smarter than us to do that. And we're not. Um, so it's just a thing. And I'd say, look it up yourself. If you want to get pissed, climate.com, uh, little, little Monsanto project. And then in my kind of ongoing state of trying to figure out which dystopian view of the collapse of civilization, uh, or the end days of civilization was going to be most correct. This one right here is pointing more towards, towards, uh, idiocracy. Uh, so yeah, there we go. If there's a toll, Congratulations to theocracy. You're one step closer and you've been winning by a long shot for at least the last couple of years. So speaking of science and uh, industries, I think they know too much. I'm really excited about this new book, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's Natural Causes. She is a, as she calls herself, a, a an amateur sociologist uh, and she's written a bunch of books, uh, a considerable number actually. Uh, I've read some of them and uh blind i'm sorry bright-sided dancing in the streets both those books are really good um and this one natural causes uh the an epidemic of wellness the certainty of dying and killing ourselves to live longer is there those ones are all really good Uh, i know she tends to get pushed a lot into the liberal and leftist circles and i'm sure for very fitting reasons um but you know, she does a pretty good job, I think, of, of really kind of contextualizing a lot. And she comes from uh, an eco-feminist background, which comes out a lot, particularly in the section of this that I'm going to read a little bit of. Um, and, yeah, I'm just going to read a bit about this book. I've got a, a lengthy review I just wrote for Black and Green Review number 6, uh, and I could go on at length. And I'm sure I'll probably be mentioning more of this in future episodes and probably doing some more reading, but I thought this section was really good uh, and has to do with the, uh, what she calls the ritual of domination that has to do with the, the uh, medical office and medical profession and just really kind of hitting on what I think is a major point and often a majorly overlooked point. And when people talk about civilization, they tend to focus a lot on what they think are the benefits of it. And there's a, a whole conversation, a whole I would hope obvious reality that, you know, uh, implicit in that discussion about civilization, about the supposed benefits would be the cost of those benefits. Uh, but obviously not always a thing, but what people tend to fall back on quite often is like, well, we've got medicine now we've got doctors now, and that's a whole new thing, which is something that's been considerably refuted. And I think a lot of things about science have been attacked for, for very good reasons. Uh, and, particularly like this modernized the reduction of science uh, and science as a virtue in and of itself. Those are things that we anarcho primitivists and anybody in the anti milieu has has attacked and continue to have attacked. And I think for obviously very, very clear reasons, but implicit within that there's kind of this tendency to say it's like, well, there's, there's a problem with the whole view of it. And there's a less of a tendency to say it's like, well let's talk about this is this really even something that's actually improved because we've seen um in line with the growing inequality gap within the united states um that there's actually still a the average life expectancy has been going down and the differences between that and the, the amount of it disproportionately affects people based on the amount of money they make the and of course you know skin color and males and females things like that um, you know, I mean that all got tied into it and there's there's more nuance to it. So the idea that is always presented it's like, well, we have healthcare, we have this and that. It's like, well, it's not available to most people and also let's not forget the rest of the fucking world. Uh and also the proclamation of, of toxins. Uh but is is this stuff that we're bragging about? Is this stuff that we feel is a part of our collective achievement, which is bullshit. Um we're feeling some kind of pride in these things, we're feeling some kind of involvement in that we, we necessarily shouldn't, but are they actually beneficial? Uh, have they actually produced a net positive? And I think there's a lot of reason to say that that's not the case, or that's not necessarily true. Uh, and I think that this, in particular, from Barbara Ehrenreich is, is good in that regard. So she's talking about uh, doctors and medical industry, in particular about labor. Well before the revival of feminism in the 1970s, some American women had begun to complain about the heavy-handed over-medicalization of childbirth. In the middle of the century, it was routine for obstetricians to heavily sedate or even fully anesthetize women in labor. Babies were born to unconscious women, and the babies sometimes came out partially anesthetized themselves, sluggish and having difficulty breathing. Since the anesthetized or sedated woman could not adequately use her own muscles to push the baby out, forceps were likely to be deployed, sometimes leading to babies with cranial injuries. There was, however, an alternative, though obstetricians did not encourage it and often actively discourage it. The Lamaze method, which had originated in the Soviet Union and France, offered breathing techniques that could reduce pain while keeping the mother and baby alert. In the 1960s, growing numbers of educated young women were taking Lamaze classes and demanding to remain awake during birth. By the time of my first pregnancy in 1970, it would have seemed irresponsible, at least my circle of friends, to do anything else. We were beginning to see that the medical profession, at that time still over 90% male, had transformed childbirth from a natural event into a surgical operation performed on an unconscious patient in what approximated to a sterile sterile environment. Routinely, the women about to give birth were subjected to an enema. Had her pubic hair shaved off and was placed in a lithotomy position on her back with knees up and crotch spread wide open. As the baby began to emerge, the obstetrician performed an episiotomy, a surgical enlargement of the vaginal opening, which had to be stitched back together after birth. Each of these procedures came with a medical rationale. The enema was to prevent contamination with feces. The pubic hair was shaved because it might become unclean. The episiotomy was meant to ease the baby's exit. But each of these was also painful, both physically and otherwise, and some came with their own risks. Shaving produces small cuts and abrasions that are open to infection. Epysiotomy scars heal more slowly than natural tears and can make it difficult for the woman to walk or relieve herself for weeks afterward. The lithotomy position may be more congenial for the physician than kneeling before a sitting woman, but it impedes the baby's process through the birth canal and can lead to tailbone injuries in the mother. So how are we to think of these procedures, which some doctors still insist on? If a procedure is not, strictly speaking, medically necessary to a healthy birth and may even be contra- uh, contradicted, why is it being performed? Anthropologist Robbie E. Davis Floyd proposed that the interventions be design- designated as rituals in the sense that they are no more scientifically justified than the actions of, quote, primitive healers. They do not serve any psycholo- psychological purpose, only what, they call, what she calls ritual purposes. The enema and shaving underscore the notion that the woman is an unclean and even unwelcome presence in the childbirth process. Anesthesia and the lithotomy position send the message that the body is a machine, or as Davis Floyd quotes philosopher Carolyn Merchant, a system of dead inert particles in which the conscious patient has no role to play. These are, in other words, rituals of domination through which a woman at the very peak of her biological prowess and vicinity is made to feel powerless, demeaned, and dirty. In one sense, childbirth rituals worked. The women giving birth were often traumatized, reporting to Davis Floyd that they felt defeated or thrown into depression. Quote, You know, treating you like you're not very bright, like you, don't have, like you don't know what's going on with your own body. End quote. And having submitted to so much discomfort and disrespect, they are expected to feel grateful to the doctor for a healthy baby. It was a perfect recipe for inducing women's compliance with their accepted social role, rituals of humiliation, followed by the fabulous gift of a child. But often, as in my own case, the rituals backfired and left women infuriated by the treatment during pregnancy and childbirth. It isn't easy to protest the lithotomy position, but in effect, growing numbers of women were rising to their feet and refusing refusing the required medical interventions, even opting for homers and midwives. By the time my children hit two-digit age, a nationwide women's health movement was challenging the misogyny of diagnosed in so much women's care, from hazardous contraceptives to a barbarous form of breast cancer surgery. The house had radical mastectomy that left his victims partially crippled. We managed to reform hospital obstetrical practice, winning acceptance for the Lamaze method, demanding and getting more female doctors, and asserting our right to participate in decisions throughout the process. But just as we made these gains, obstetric care was becoming more intrusive and controlling other ways. Electronic fetal monitoring during labor became more routine even for low-risk births, and then when the monitoring was conducted internally through a probe inserted through the vagina, the woman had to remain bedridden throughout labor. Slight fluctuations in fetal heart rate could set off disproportionate alarm, leading to a shockingly high rate of cesarean sections, 30% that began to level off only in 2009. No longer could we place blame for the mismanagement of childbirth on patriarchy, Women were also up against technocracy, as David Floyd writes, and the idea that any procedure involving wires, drugs, and scalpels was inherently superior to anything that proceeded without technological intervention. So that's a little bit from Barbara Ehrenreich's Natural Causes, which is a really great book, and I am strongly recommending. But I think that that, you know, that sums up uh, the direct experience of, you know, I I think a lot of people, if you open up to it, obviously, you know, a ton of women uh, Virtually almost all mothers That have to give birth in a hospital uh, And having seen that situation up close I mean it is really You know ritual of domination Really does sum it up well And you can kind of see the entire process By which life is brought into this world Is this entirely uh, As she says medicalized process Of childbirth and just You know she goes in the book as well to talk about the medicalization Of death the increasing medicalization Of death and um, which you could also say is really just the the medicalization of life in general. And she goes on extensively about like annual exams and things like that and all these cancer screening kind of scare tactics uh, and hyper-technological interventions. And it it just kind of creates a scenario where you just have to accept and cede to the idea that technology knows better than you, that the doctor knows better than you, that the specialist knows better than you. And we get back to this whole thing about data and data mining and predictive behavior and algorithms to remove any individual, remove any certain circumstance or any peculiarities or aberrations or abnormalities about a situation to remove them into the sphere of just predictable behavior and predictable responses. And she she goes through in the book, it doesn't matter that most of the stuff is not actually right. It doesn't matter that uh, what ends up happening with the advanced imaging that you get through modern MRIs and modern technology and imaging technology often leads to uh, kind of red flag scenarios around potentially benign or very small aberrations within the body that may not actually be anything at all or may never form into anything and that the the removal of those parts and the treatment of those aberrations is often going to be a lot worse than just leaving it there, or letting it go. And you you can see that. I mean, though, and the way that childbirth is handled, the way the pregnancy is handled, it's always leading towards this really total, like kind of scare situation. Like, because we have the technology, we should use it. And nobody wants to talk about what the consequences of these technologies are. And as we, we've seen, as you can see in, in minutia, because this, of course, this shit's not really being studied the way it should. Um, you know, it's it's another situation where rich fuckers can do what they want, or anything that can be done technologically is done, and then we'll we'll figure it out later. Uh, we see that virtually every single aspect of life within civilization, but it continues to get worse as technology increases and the ability of domestication through programming really tightens its grasp to the point where this this entire predictive behavior and this entire situation where the deck is constantly stacked in the favor of technology and in favor of civilization and in favor of, in this case, doctors in the medical industry to say that we are the officials. We are the people who know best. We know what's going on. Um, And it's something I think that, you know, I've got some more experience with, I'm sure everybody does, but, uh, you know, talk a little bit more about and future episodes. But for now, I just wanted to get that out there. I thought that was, really important, really good. And also, you know, a good review of the reasons why, you know, don't always listen to doctors. Don't always depend on the specialist to represent anything that's necessarily good for you. And I, I think that what's in, what ends up happening too is that there's probably a lot of people who think that they're going to the doctors solely for this kind of worst case scenario deals. And then it creates a situation where it's like, since it's the worst case scenario, you're willing to go to doctor that you're you're more inclined to listen to what they have to say and there's no reason to believe in that scenario versus any other preventative supposedly preventative situation or anything other situation in which you might interact with a doctor or a doctor might seek you out to try and search for problems and potentially find something that's not uh anything malignant um you know there there's just a lot there to say that like you know rewilding at its very core about becoming wild about getting more in touch with with the world and with your own body has to do with this very first basic step that is taking control of your own existence and taking control of your own subsistence and and learning how to deal with you know minor or major problems that might come about in day-to-day life and obviously hunter gatherers had a lot of that knowledge which is why this whole thing about you know, citing an anthropologist to talk about the nature of rituals, uh, and th- there's more about that in the book, uh, There, there's a complete overconfidence in the medical industry. There's complete overconfidence in technology, and it turns out that a lot of what, what a hunter-gatherer might encounter, uh, or even a horticulturalist or anything like that, uh, that they might involve uh, a shaman or a healer or whatever that society might have, is more adept at properly dealing with actual issues than the medical industry. And it has a tendency to over specialize in hyper technologize like any kind of problem, be it big or be it small. Uh so you know, you really have to not not just like, you know, kind of kill the cop in your head, you have to kill the doctor and the professional in your head that says that this person innately knows more than you do. And there, there are certain degrees where that is going to be true. There's always cases where that's going to be the, the case, but they rely, and this is an industry, and it's driven by uh, pharmaceutical companies. It's driven by um, all all the in individual things. And she mentions in there, for example, just one thing that stuck out, uh, like a colonoscopy can cost as much as $10,000, which is, you know, pay money, total payout for... Uh, insurance companies, because I think if you're over the age of 50 or 55 or something like that. You're supposed to get them every year. Um, it's an insane amount of money and it's a, it's a shell game. It's a Ponzi scheme. And that's how this shit works. So, you know, there's, there's that tendency. Cause you want to say, it's like, well, if civilization's here. I'm going to use these things. I'm going to use this benefit or something like that. It's like, you're giving up so much agency when you do that. And there, there's scenarios where that's, that should be the backup plan or that is what's going on and, and that's why you would go to that person or something like that. But, you know, it's not an argument for civilization and people just get so caught up in the, the technology and everything of it that that we're willing to believe that. And that's kind of a, you know, well, it's obviously a very sad case, but it's an important thing that you constantly have to remind yourself that we are capable Of so much more and we should have so much more knowledge and there's so much more experience that we should have with plants and with everything else about healing and with our own bodies and becoming in touch with our own bodies Uh, that's a basic starting point and being prepared for the kind of situations that can arise and being prepared for you know what the plants around you might be telling you about your own health um all that stuff does matter so long story short it's a great book highly recommend it and Hopefully it's a way to help open up people's eyes towards taking some agency within their own life when it comes to, uh, what, what quality of life means versus just prolonging death. So there's one last, uh, topic I want to discuss on this particular episode. And it's one I've honestly been kind of dragging my feet on for a bit. Um, and it's also a topic that I think is going to, that deserves a lot more discussion than I'm going to give it in this particular episode um but it's a kind of question that that kept coming up for me uh as I'm writing the the current book that I'm working on which is of God's and Country uh the domestication of our world which is interweaves two narratives and one is about the origins of religion and um patriarchy and nationalism going back through you know from hunter gatherers uh up to horticulturalists and agriculturalists and then the the other narrative that goes along with that is the impact of missionaries and colonization on those people. So, kind of like the buildup of, organ, of religion, nationalism, and patriarchy, and then the imposition of the most complete, totalized, pure forms of those in the in the form of monotheistic religions and everything like that, and uh, missionary contact and missionary conquest as the the consequence of that, or kind of like the the extreme of it. Uh, it's hard to kind of sum up in a, in a short way, but it's, it's something I've been working on for quite some time now. Uh, and I do hope to have it done relatively soon. I have some other stuff that's kind of going to have to jump in shortly here. Um, but, uh, probably hopefully have it out this summer. Um, not entirely sure, but, uh, I have talked about it a bit. I will continue to talk about it a bit on the podcast, but, one kind of question that that's come up for me personally, as I'm writing it, because the, the narrative about the missionaries obviously comes down to largely Christian religions. And uh, there's a good bit of Muslim uh, religions and Muslim missionaries that are involved in that. For the most part the story does revolve around Christian missionaries. And also why I, as somebody who was raised Jewish would be focusing on Christian missionaries. Uh, And I think that there's, a big part of that is explained by, you know, Bart Ehrman, who is a, uh, I guess you'd say a theologian, Bible, Bible scholar, also atheist. Well, I guess maybe not fully an atheist. I forget I forget the deal, but I, I don't care, whatever. Bart Ehrman uh, is a guy who's who's a uh, historian, at least, of Christianity. He's got a new book that's out, and I think that I really like the way he, he put it in terms of saying that uh, Christianity was the first... Religion that was out to convert, uh, and in part with conquest, and and it's been kind of commonly really known that pantheists, uh, whenever they were colonizing, which often they were, and people tend to want to forget that about pagan religions and things like that, um, they were colonizers and they had some crazy ideas, but they were capable of adding conquered gods into their realm, um, and for monotheists it was very different, as any kind of god was a was a uh, potential conflict of interest, you could say, with the order that they were going to impose. And so Judaism as as one of the first, the predominant or the, the main predominant monotheistic religion, you know, it's not that there was nothing colonizing or conquest-oriented about Judaism, just that they weren't interested in converting people. And that's a big part of the story, and that's what makes it different. Um, but there's, there's parts of me that when I'm going through all this stuff and I'm looking at the nature of it, that frankly makes me kind of happy that of all other options that I did grow up Jewish, which is, it was just conflicting and a kind of a strange thing. I'm in no way, shape or form religious. I absolutely hate God. I consider myself an anti theist as opposed to an atheist. I'm just genuinely against religion, against the idea of God. Uh, and something I elaborate in the book, like, um, you know, there's there a while where I I felt like I, I kind of dabbled a little bit in agnosticism, kind of like, oh we can't say this or we can't say that. And it's like, it's bullshit. I mean, we can show that God was historically created, uh, which I'm pretty sure is all you need to show that something is full of shit. It's just like, well, you know, E.T. could have been a documentary. It's like, well, it wasn't. It was written. Uh, so, you know, why we have that kind of view about uh, a shitty book that was, you know, uh, fan fiction for patriarchs that has really taken part in wrecking the world. Why we would grant it any more space than that is beyond me. So, um, but it it is all based off the same book. Um, and I, that's not something I want to undercut at any point. And it's not like in any way I, I can be forgiving about it. But, you know, my experience growing up Jewish definitely, I think, probably – helped or impacted some of the stuff just because, frankly, Judaism was a a dying religion. It was always more of a cultural thing uh, for me and and pretty much everybody I've known that's Jewish besides some members of my family uh, and people who were involved in temple and things like that. Um, You know, we don't have Satan, really. We don't have all these these negative kind of things. And, frankly, a lot of what unified us was was the reaction to the Holocaust. Um, And you know seeing that as a a cultural event and seeing that as something that really defined who we are and that's that's not really unknown in the history of judaism and i think it's one of the things that that kind of colors away that there is a a bit of a a jewish perspective of the world and i think it's one of the reasons why um and to be totally honest i've never actually double or triple checked this statistic but it was from an anarchist book uh talking about the um uh, I forget the name of it, but it was a major major Yiddish paper uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, but it's somewhere in the, I believe in the introduction to the book of that, I, I forget exactly where it is, uh, it mentioned that among Russian immigrants, the number one political affiliation, r- among Jewish Russian immigrants, uh, the turn of the 20th century, the number one political affiliation was anarchism, um, which, you know, kind of... It's, historically speaking, doesn't seem untrue. Um, and whether or not any of my ancestors or any of the people that came from, well, they mostly came from Poland. Um, but I know some did go through Russia. I, I don't think that they had any necessarily uh, anarchist links personally, but I'm sure they had to have known a lot of other uh, Russian Jews that were anarchists. But, you know, it just seemed that it was because we have no real... Consequential uh, side for for giving up faith or whatever it is, uh, it does make it very easy to just rely on it as a as a cultural identity, uh, especially one that was often being persecuted. Which being persecuted is a big part of it, um, and also the idea of being nomadic uh, and being exiled. Uh, it it really kind of colors it. And there's there's some cool things about it. There's some things about Yiddish that I actually like. Uh, one one thing in particular being that um, the kind of Jewish Yiddish slam uh, on uh, the Christian colonizers and things like that and, and people in power when you had these shtetls, uh, which were like Jewish um, ghettos, uh, one of the uh, the terms that was pushed around it, and it was kind of just like a slam on people in power and the Christians in power and things like that uh, is this phrase Nishka uh, Flogan and Nishka And so it was kind of like the, you know, if a pig had fly or something, sorry, if a pig had wings, it could fly or something like that, which was just, just a sleight of hand kind of undercutting, um, yeah, that's bullshit statement. Uh, and of course, Nishka mean and Nishka Stoygan. I forget the exact pronunciation, or I'm sorry, not the exact pronunciation, the, act- the exact definition basically like it didn't have wings and it didn't fly away. So the entire notion of transubstantiation, which is the underlying principle of, uh, Christianity, the idea that Jesus died for your sins and then was ascended to heaven. Um, just, you know, it, it, it there's something very funny in that and very humorous in that, that this basic phrase that existed was basically saying, yeah, your whole thing is bullshit and here it is. So I do like that. And I think that's why there's, um, a kind of fatalism about a lot of Yiddish, and that translates to a lot of humor that kind of gets associated with Jewish culture. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of Jews tend to identify that with that, myself included. Um, so it, it, but it does get complicated because this is kind of this cultural identity. And it's hard for me to really go into detail about a lot of it and really kind of go into the depths of it but I've kind of forced myself to think about this more and why um, why I don't focus on more on Judaism in this book and it's not that it doesn't go unmentioned or anything like that um, but I think that that main colonizing aspect for the, for the story and the narrative of the book it makes more sense to focus on but also because there is more of a visceral rage about certain aspects of it and that has to do with the way that you know, I didn't just grow up Jewish, and I, it took a long time to really realize this. I grew up a Zionist, um, and a lot of people I knew also grew up as Zionists, and a lot of you know, even even with Reform American Jews, this is a common thing that you'll come across. And really building up the identity that we were always at war, we were always exiles, we were always on the verge of of facing a new. Uh, Nazi immersion, and it it created this idea that I think Freddie Perlman gets to really perfectly, uh, and I'm gonna reading a little bit of that in a minute here. Uh, that you know, not the the continuation of the Jewish exile from from Israel and Jerusalem uh, continues on through this, this constant fight against oppressors. And in this case, it's, you know, who's currently, because, because of the Holocaust, who is currently keeping us from the Holy land, which of course is Israel. Um, and it gets really fucking hard to talk about this because, um, you know, something I was frankly quite embarrassed about, but it, you know, looking back on it, I mean, whatever it's, it's just the way I was raised. I, I wasn't just, jewish and i don't even know if i ever really cared much about the idea of believing in god myself um and i have been an atheist for a very long time um but more importantly than that i you know i when i was young like very young like 10 um i didn't just want to i wasn't didn't just consider myself jewish i wanted to move to israel and i wanted to fight for the army and in my ideas that meant i was fighting nazis um and that fell apart very quickly um you know even even as early as 1990 uh and seeing what was actually going on in the middle east and and seeing you know what were the causes of warfare uh or just decimation um at the hands of the israeli state and looking at palestine and gaza strip and seeing how these things very quickly unfolded and continued to unfold it gets really fucking hard, and I and I know it gets very hard for a lot of people to hear about the situation because it's so fucking easy for anybody who's defending Israel, which is the epitome of a nuclear colonial state uh, and a, a puppet state in the middle of the Middle East, to or to assert Western dominance, to assert Western control, this rituals of domination, uh, and it's just fucking insane like what's what's happening and this just just the embracing of the walls the embracing of the the militarized zones and the the reality of it is which is you know palestinians and gaza citizens throw rocks and israel just fucking bombs and annihilates people so this is something that i had been wanting to talk about i wanted to discuss and like i said it deserves a lot more attention than i'm giving it right now um and relatively recently uh you know I went and I, I took a picture of this this memorial and there's a there's there are hidden Jewish cemeteries um that are not spoken about um and there's there's one that my dad had taken me to when I was younger um and it, you know it always kind of stuck with me but these these cemeteries are for uh people who had actually died in or survived uh the concentration camps. And so, you know, that's the reason why for the most part this is, you know, not going to be out in the open. And if we saw last year and I think even going a bit before that, there was a huge trend in in vandalizing Jewish cemeteries. Um so all the more reason why these these particular plots are hidden. Um and so there's there's a, a marker at the beginning of this hidden cemetery uh, and and this is the this, this statement on it to commemorate the supreme sacrifice and martyrdom of our dear ones who gave up their lives as victims of nazi barbarism uh so people from 1933 to 1945 uh or died at that time or were in concentration camps or round up in anything during those times or buried there uh, and i i went back and i took a picture of that that statement the day that uh one of one of the days, obviously, it's been many now, that neo Nazis were marching uh, in some city in America. I forget which one, and the uh, militarized pl- fucking pigs were just standing there, holding guns up to uh, antifa and protesters, anti racist protesters, for standing up to Nazis. And it's just kind of one of those things. Just like it just it's totally fucking insane, uh, because of what's going on there, and because that. You know that's so much a part of this identity, this idea that I've always had, which is never again and we're always gonna fucking fight Nazis, and that's where this comes from. And it's always been that acceptable thing. Like that's why you get a movie like *Inglorious Bastards*. It's like, it, yeah, okay, you can kill Nazis, you can be more violent towards Nazis than zombies in a movie or something like that, and it's totally accepted. And I'm fine with that. Um, but then they actually come about, and you get this actual rise, uh, resurgence of of fascism and of just Nazis and shitheads and stuff like that, that again, all goes through social media and all has to do with all of that. Um, and, you know, the response is just to to clamp down on this. So I kind of got prompted in thinking about that. And in the meantime, uh, it's been this kind of continual thing of just decimation along uh, the Palestinian border. Um, and going back even a couple weeks, where you know there was, there was a couple rounds of protests that were happening along the along the border wall, and Israel just opens up fire, um, and I mean thousands of thousands of people wounded. And there was on uh, I think it was like a month ago. There was a particular case where there was a a parsley farmer that was picking. Uh, parsley during the time that that was going on that was removed from it it got fucking shelled by a tank and you know you think about volatile occupations you don't tend to think a parsley farmer um, would be up there but that's just the case and it's just complete decimation and the entire justification for this is not any different from where the missionaries are coming from, that this is ordained by God, that this is somehow okay, that this is somehow all right. This is our ancestral land. This is where it is. We are deemed to be a part of this and whatever the consequences of it stand in the way God has chosen this path. Um, so it's not that I couldn't focus on Judaism in writing this book and it's not that Judaism escapes. It, it is a part of monotheism. It's a crucial part of this whole story. Uh, But there's this part of me that just, you know, it it has that kind of visceral thing. And it's, you know, irony to say that there's some guilt involved in there. I used to say my own Jewish guilt is uh, coming back to just say it's like, yeah, I I was a kid. I didn't know. Why would I have ever thought that that's necessarily what was going on Um, and that it was okay to say or okay to think, you know, this, this is some ancestral homeland, which I have no fucking connection with Israel at all. I'm a fucking Eastern European mutt through and through. I never even fucking met my birth parents. I'm never going to. Um, so why, you know, supposedly there's this, this fucking 2000 year old exodus and lineage that I'm supposed to feel connected to. It's like, this is just fucking geopolitics. That's all it ever has been. That's all this shit is. And and that's, I think an important point that, you know, I, I, hope to make repeatedly book through this book and through my writing in general. is like the, the stories that we tell, we tend to focus so much on like wars are caused by religion. It's like, wars are never caused by religion. Wars are justified by religion always. Uh, and that's where it's at. And it's with, with the entirety of colonization, the entire affair of it was always built around the idea that, you know, this, this is our right. So a couple of things I want to read just to, to kind of close that out there. Um, one, I just thought this is a great book of uh, modernity and the Holocaust by Zygmunt Bauman, a uh, really good book and very important for me personally. Um, but this, this is strongly recommended reading. Uh, and I'll just read a quick quote from this, the unspoken terror permeating our collective memory of the Holocaust and even more than conting- contingently related to the overwhelming desire not to look at the memory in its face. Is a gnawing suspicion that the Holocaust could be more than an aberration, more than a deviation from an otherwise straight path of progress, more than a cancerous growth on the otherwise healthy body of the civilized society, that, in short, the Holocaust was not an antithesis of modern civilization and everything, or so we like to think it stands for. We suspect, even if we refuse to admit it, that the Holocaust could merely have uncovered another face of the same modern society whose other more familiar face we so admire and that the two faces are perfectly comfortably attached to the same body. What we perhaps fear most is that each side of the two faces could no more exist without the other than can the two sides of a coin. So just a quick quote, but you know, an important book for pointing out, uh, the ways in which, uh, civils or, I'm sorry, the Holocaust was typical of civilization and the reflection of modernity than, uh, than the opposite. And the other here is from Freddie Perlman. So this is in Anything Can Happen. It's a book Black and Green put out uh, last year, which is a updated version of the, I think, 1993 uh, collection of essays. But there's some stuff in here that's absolutely crucial. And Perlman is a massive influence on me. Um, and I you know, strongly recommend picking up this and Against against History Against the Viathon, which I think is the best book ever written. Uh, so I'm going to read a little bit of this just because it's relevant and I think that this this essay in particular, Anti-Semitism and the Beirut Program, as well as the Continuing Appeal of Nationalism, uh, which are both in this book, are are kind of the things that I think could be read very regularly. The trick of declaring war against the armed resistance and then attacking the resistors' unarmed kin as well as the surrounding population with the most gruesome products of death signs, this trick is not new. American pioneers were pioneers in this too. They made it standard practice to declare war on indigenous warriors and then murder and burn villages with only women and children in them. This is already modern war, what we know as war against civilian populations. It has also been called, more candidly, mass murder or genocide. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the perpetuators of pogrom portray portray themselves as the victims, in the present case, as victims of the Holocaust. Herman Melville noticed over a century ago in this analysis of the metaphysics of Indian hating that those who made a full-time profession of hunting and murdering indigenous people on this continent always made themselves appear, even in their own eyes, as the victims of manhunts. The use the Nazis made of the international Jewish conspiracy is better known. During all the years of atrocities defying belief, the Nazis considered themselves the victimized. It's the experience of being a victim gave exemption from human solidarity, as if it gave special powers, as if it gave a license to kill. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I can't keep myself from being angry, because such a posture is the posture of a salute, the posture of who denies human freedom, who denies that he chooses himself as a killer. The experience, whether personally lived or learned from the revelations, explains and determines nothing. It is nothing but a phony alibi. Melville analyzed the moral integrity of the Indian hater. I'm talking about the modern pogromists, the more narrow, narrowly the, about cheerleaders for pogroms. I'm talking about people who haven't personally killed 50 or 5 or even one human being. I'm talking about America, where the quest is to immerse oneself in paradise while avoiding any contact with its dirty work where only a minority is still involved in the personal doing of the dirty work, where the vast majority are full-time voyeurs, peepers, professionals, call them what you will. Among the voyeurs, I'm concentrating on the voyeurs of Holocaust and pogroms. I have to keep referring to what's on the screen because that's what's being watched, but my concern is is with the watcher, with the one who chooses himself a voyeur, specifically a voyeur of Holocaust, a cheerleader for death squads. Mention the words Beirut and Pogrom in the same sentence to such a one, and he'll vomit all the morality inside of him. He won't vomit much. The likeliest response you'll get is a moronic chuckle and a cynical laugh. I'm reminded of my uncle, the one who wasn't hit by a car, who at least had the shred of moral integrity to see what others saw and reject it. And I contrast my uncle with this person who either sees nothing at all or cynically affirms what he sees, cynically accepts himself. If he's an intellectual, a professor, he'll respond with the exact equivalent of the moronic grim and the cynical laugh, but with words. He'll bombard you with his sophistries, half truths, and outright lies, which are perfectly transparent to him, even as he mutters them. This is not an airy, wide-eyed idealist, but a gross, down-to-earth, property-minded, property-oriented materialist with no illusions about what constitutes expropriation of what he calls real estate. Yet this real estate man will start telling you that. The Levantine Zion is a Jewish land, and he'll point you to a 2,000-year-old title. He calls Hitler a madman for having claimed the Sudan land was a German land because he totally rejects the rules that would have made it a German land. International peace treaties are included in his rules, violent expropriations are not. It suddenly pulls out a set of rules which, if, the real, if he really accepted them, would pulverize the entire edifice of real property. If he really accepted such roles, he would be selling plots in Gdansk to Kashubians returning from exile, tracks in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota to Ojibwe reappropriating their homeland, estates in Iran, Iraq, and much of Turkey to homeward-bound Indian parisies. And he would even have to lease parts of Zion itself to Chinese descendants of Nestorian Christians and to many other besides. Such arguments have more affinity with a moronic chuckle than with a cynical laugh. The cynical laugh translated into words would say, we, they always say we, we conquered the primitives, expropriated them, and ousted them. The, expropri- the expropriated are still resisting, and in the meantime, we have acquired two generations who have no other home but Zion. Being realists, we know we can end the resistance once and for all by exterminating the expropriated. Such cynicism without a shred of moral integrity might be realistic, but it might be also turn out to be what C.W. Mills called crackpot realism because the resistance might survive and spread, and it might go on as long as the Irish. There's yet another response, the response of the cudgel armed Defense League bully who thinks that the absence of a brown shirt makes him unrecognizable. He clenches his fists and tightens his grips on his club and shouts, Traitor. The response is the most ominous, for it claims that we are a club to which we all are welcome, but the membership is, for some is mandatory. In this usage, Traitor does not mean anti-Semite since it is aimed at people who empathize with the plight of the current Semites. Traitor does not mean pogromist. since it is aimed at the people who still empathize with the victims of the pogrom. This term is one of the few components of the vocabulary of a racist through the ages. It means traitor of the race. And here I reach the single element which the new anti-Semite has not yet shared with the old anti-Semite, Sorry, the totalitarian, totalitarian synchronization of all political activity and expression. The entire race must march, must march in step to every same drumbeat. All are to obey. The uniqueness of the condemned Eichmann becomes reduced to the difference in a holiday ritual. It seems to me that such goons are not preservers of the traditions of a perse- persecuted culture. They are conversos, not to the Catholicism of Fernando Eusebel. They are conversos to the political practice of the Führer. The long exile is over. The persecuted refugee, at long last, returns to Zion but so badly scarred he's unrecognizable he has completely lost his self. he returns an anti Semite, as a pogromist, a mass murderer the of the ages of exile and the suffering are still included in his makeup but only as self justifications and as a repertory of horrors and imposed on primitives and even on the earth itself i'm going to close out here with reading a little bit more from continuing appeal of nationalism which is also in anything can happen the idea that an understanding of the genocide, that a memory of the Holocaust, can only lead people to want to dismantle the system is erroneous. The continuing appeal of nationalism suggests that the opposite is truer, namely that an understanding of genocide has led people to mobilize genocidal armies, that the memory of Holocaust has led people to per- perpetrate the Holocaust. The sensitive poets who remembered the loss, the researchers who documented it, have been like the pure scientists who discovered the structure of the atom. Applied scientists use the discovery to split the atom's nucleus, to produce weapons which can split in every atom's nucleus. Nationalists use the poetry to split and fuse human populations, to mobilize genocidal armies, to perpetrate new holocausts. The pure scientists, poets, and researchers consider themselves innocent of the devastated countryside and charred bodies. Are they innocent? It seems to me at least one of Marx's observations is true. Every minute devoted to the capitalist production process, Every thought contributed to the industrial system further enlarges a power that is inimical in nature, to culture, to life. Applied science is not something alien. It is an integral part of the capitalist production process. Nationalism is not flown in from abroad. It is a product of capitalist production process, like the chemical agents poisoning the lakes, airs, and animals, and people. Like the nuclear power plants radioactivating microenvironments in preparation for the radioactivation of the macroenvironment. As a postscript, I'd like to answer a question before it is asked. The question Do you think that a descendant of oppressed people is better off as a supermarket manager or a police chief? My answer is another question What concentration camp manager, national executioner, or torturer is not a descendant of oppressed people? So, it's from Freddie. Uh, yeah, you can just fucking nail it. Freddie is uh, awesome. So, it's anything can happen, uh, and it is available on blackandgreenreview.org. Uh, you can pick that up and other black and green press titles um, and recommended that you do. Uh, So uh, close it out there. Like I said, that's a a subject that I think could use more discussion in future episodes, but um, for now, just going to leave it there and uh, do make sure to keep that in mind as uh, inevitably more atrocities continue to unfold in Israel, Palestine, and Gaza, much of the Middle East and, and anywhere that uh, colonizers have to pretend that they are the oppressed people. Uh, so it's kind of an endemic thing to civilization. So with that, um, if you have any questions or comments, black and green Press at gmail.com is the email address. And on blackandgreenreview.org under the podcast tab, there all the past episodes are up there. And there's also a form for submitting questions uh, for future podcasts. There's anything you want me to cover, anything you want me to discuss. Uh, the newest books from Black and Green Press are my collection of essays, Gathered Remains, and Black and Green Review Number Five. If you have anything you'd like to submit or discuss for submission to number six please do so soon. You can also contribute or donate to help uh, fund black and green projects and everything like that Uh, on the black and green press. I'm sorry, the black and green review.org page under the podcast tab. There's also a link for PayPal, which you can make one time donations or subscriptions, whatever recurring payments. And also through Patreon, which is linked on there as well. These are very expensive projects to run. Printing books continues to get more expensive, uh, so any help with that is greatly appreciated uh, and talk to you next time. Thanks. It's going down and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying. There is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting, or dying. It's Going Down It's a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.